0: Today's guest is an expert in hospitality development and planning. He's dedicated to adapting and accommodating current corporate values like social responsibility. He's described as a solid leader, exceptional relationship builder, and a remarkable technical subject matter expert. He's a senior vice president at Cumming Corporation. Ladies and gentlemen, Nikki Uncles. Thanks for having me, Dan. It's good to have you here. I'm so glad we're doing this in person because... My Scottish is not very good.
1: <laughs> I will try and speak slowly and clearly.
0: Um, so there's a lot of, thi- a lot of subjects I want to cover with you. But um, first, I just wanted to ask, you know, just for those of you who don't know, you open hotels, right? You're conducting the symphony of all the consultants, the construction, managing all the budgets, um, mostly in the luxury side. But you're really getting all these things to come together on a postage stamp at some point in the future, on time, on budget, in the luxury space. So in juggling all that, and juggling all those chainsaws, right, and to make all that happen, all these really important milestones, how do you define hospitality on the way towards what you're trying to accomplish? So um, the definition of hospitality
1: is the friendly reception and treatment of guests or strangers. To be genuine means to be authentic and sincere. These terms seem easy enough to understand, but the actual practice of genuine hospitality takes consideration and anticipation of your customers' needs. It's real, it's authentic, it's caring, it's compassionate, and above all, it's above all, it's welcoming. It doesn't matter if it's the CEO of a Fortune 500 or the intern. True hospitality is an emotional connection with the guest. And all guests are
0: guests. So in in keeping with that, and, and you're trying to establish that connection. So I know in speaking with you earlier, like buildings are just buildings. It's all the yeah. things that happen within it, right? And you're responsible for making those buildings come to life. When you think about that, um, how do you balance all those things while still trying to drive a project to open on time so that the owners that you're working with are happy and and they feel that same way when it opens. How do you manage all the stakeholders? So it's ultimately all comes down to a process and we need to
1: delineate that process very early on. And we also need to manage expectations head on and early on in that process. And if that process is not maintained or, the, or there's a deviation from that process, things start to come undone relatively quickly. So my job is ultimately keeping everyone in their lane, allowing owners and decision makers to make informed decisions. And those informed decisions would be what would the impact, what would the schedule or budget impact be of making a small change. That small change to them may seem insignificant, but it may have a detrimental impact on the schedule.
0: Mm. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it's really like listening to everyone, keeping everyone informed, and but really staying in your lane. And I know that you know we all think that we've seen every possible scenario. But when we're doing a new project, whether it's furniture or building the whole building, we still see things. That we've never seen before, right? We're still surprised. So, can you give an example of one of those times where you had a big surprise that was unexpected, and kind of how you navigated all those stakeholders while also getting, you know, driving to what your your ultimate goal is and the thesis of the project, but also making sure that everyone is heard and accountable.
1: Uh, there was one particular project, rather significant project that I will not mention. Um, And we were well into construction, and the owner decided that he was going to change the design of the property. And when I say change the design, it was to introduce an entirely new design team. Um, So at that moment in time, as frightening as it was, the only way to best protect the client was to ensure that the program remained Somewhat untouched, and that the changes that were brought to the table were more tag finishes by way of ID, and less layout changes. Mm. That said, all the materiality had already been purchased, and trying to undo that was close to impossible. Mm. So you're getting you know twenty five cents in the dollar credits for materiality you've already pre purchased, and so we were trying to best encourage and i use encourage um carefully here we try to best encourage the design team and the owner to harness those materials we'd already purchased Mm. and uh, ultimately there was um back and forth and there's a compromise like there is in most things in life
0: and it opened It opened.
1: It opened a year late and massively over budget. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We uh, we had a tsunami of change orders that we had to best navigate, and um, that was you know a a real a real challenge because you know it was myself and one other cost manager against uh, an army of engineers who were looking for ways of. Sliding paper across the table to say you owe us this amount of money, and mm. we had to not only verify the validity of those change orders, but really tear them apart and dig into the the unit pricing, the rates, the materiality, and you know try and best protect the owner as we could. I mean, ultimately, we saved you know significant amounts of money, but there was still a huge budget bust as a result of that change, which mm. was.
0: Well, it wasn't you that changed the design as everything was going, right? So you just, at that point, you're dealt a, a, a hand and you have to adapt and get it done.
1: All we could do at that moment in time was mitigate the overall risk and
0: exposure. Mm. Great. Um, so coming, okay, so there's a couple, this next area, it kind of dovetails into a couple different things, but obviously we just went through a pandemic, right? And as, an, as being in the, In the storm as a supplier um, you know it was really about hanging on like how do we hang on and do this and there were a lot of people that were that hung on there were a lot of people that didn't and then there were the few companies that really took it as an opportunity to grow and I really think that you guys took this as an opportunity of growth through acquisition and growth I think you started before you 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 carried on through the pandemic How, as a company, going through all of that, did you guys communicate with each other and maintain that culture of abundance and growth? We were very fortunate in
1: that construction ultimately was an essential um, requirement, and it allowed us to continue. I mean, we slowed down. I can only speak to my hospitality projects, but, you know, we slowed down for you know, a couple of days and we were back at it. It was, you know, permits were changed. We were railroading through uh, all the projects as essential works. And it was really about not necessarily staffing the projects, the construction itself was somewhat unchallenging. It was the, in the months that followed the initial shutdown, the materiality shortages became a, a huge huge challenge, and we saw the unforeseen uh, escalation in both materiality and labour. It was a it was a very challenging time. Uh, we we did get through that. Ultimately, a lot of the budgets uh, had to be compromised, and there was value engineering introduced to offset those uh, escalations. Um, and towards the end of projects where we met what I thought was the single biggest challenge was the shipping. Um, you know, most FF&E, uh, those vendors are, are coming out of, you know, Vietnam, China. Um, a lot of the vendors, you know, will say they're in Canada, but ultimately the, the materials themselves are fabricated in far off distant lands and, um, we had to work hand-in-hand with the procurement agents to best navigate those troubled waters. And it was massively challenging. And it was, you know, hand-to-hand combat daily um, to get those containers to a U.S. port.
0: Mm. Yeah, and then, but also I got the feeling, and I also saw that you guys continued to grow through then,
1: right? uh, Apologies, yes. So we... Actually grew, you know, 25% year on year
0: through COVID. Um, and was that organic or acquisition or both?
1: It was a combination. I mean, the majority of it was ultimately acquisition. And, you know, uh, where where others stumbled and, and floundered, we were in a fortunate position to be strong. And um, Derek and, and and the rest of the team saw it as a real opportunity to to grow, and we you know doubled down on the on the acquisitions and 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 grew the business you know quite significantly over
0: the past 3 years wow i mean it's pretty amazing because there are companies that did grow but most of most everyone most companies were just hanging on so how did you guys like i guess what was the strategy who who said you know what it's time to acquire it's time to go and then I guess you just had a lot of dry powder in there?
1: You know, there was no magic sauce. There was no secret formula. Um, We adapted to suit and, you know, we were adapting continually. uh, And we evolved all the way through COVID and we continually evolved to this day. You know, we're, we're very fortunate in that hospitality is. Uh, a, a small sector in Cummings' overall overall portfolio were very well diversified, with aviation, transport, infrastructure, education. Uh, so we 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 were fortunate that where if one market sector was hit, uh, other market sectors flourished. And um, that said, for hospitality, we were very fortunate in that we predominantly are focused in luxury and ultra luxury mm. hospitality which saw phenomenal growth through covid yeah um it was the uh, select service and extended say properties that got decimated mm. um, they're making a strong comeback now but I mean let's face it they were decimated but uh, those ultra luxury properties excelled I mean you look at uh, I'm in Geary in, in Utah with Canyon Equity. I mean, those guys were sold out years in advance um, with, with with the offering they had, the very unique offering they had. So Ultra Luxury, we were very fortunate. That was one of our core focuses
0: of hospitality. So that's a good point, because in I, I hear that you're well diversified. I, I mean, I, I see it, but as I'm hearing you say that. Um, so I guess a two-part question. One is how do the do the learnings that you learn from working in ultra luxury or luxury and ultra luxury hospitality? How do how do the learnings that you you gain on projects apply to the other channels like aviation, commercial, you name it? Is there is there any kind of learning or way that or you, I know you said processes? It's all about process, process, process. Earlier, is there anything that you guys have learned or distilled from hospitality? distilled whiskey scotch there we go but um is there any does it does that apply to all your other channels number one and then number two and and how and number two um how, how do you define and stay as a leader in luxury and ultra luxury based on all those learnings and findings like what keeps you in that sandbox
1: so Beyond being the one-trick pony in hospitality, um, we genuinely, I genuinely, my team genuinely loves what we do. My interns, my senior project managers, directors, vice presidents, they genuinely love what they do. Sometimes they're moved on to other sectors and they call me and they're like, Nikki, I'm bored. I want to get back into hospitality. We love it. It's exciting. It's fun. It's you, you can relate to it immediately. And there's no bigger kick uh, than going back to past properties that you've lost bags of blood, sweat and tears on over years. And you're actually now seeing them operate successfully. There's no bigger kick out of that. And and I take my family back to properties I've previously worked on, and I I I love to be there, um, because we love what we do. Um, it's it's easier uh, when you do what you love, uh, and 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 we have a very strong connection with the luxury and ultra luxury market. And owners and developers, you know, like to work with us. They 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 know the attributes we bring. We don't need to sell ourselves. Um, they know the value that we that we can immediately add. And we like to get involved in these projects early on in the process. That's where we can best mitigate overall risk and exposure. Uh, and sometimes owners and developers bring us into the process later in the day when they're already nine months pregnant, and we're holding their hand, taking them into the into the maternity ward.
0: Hmm. or you're already on it and then they change everything in the middle <laughs> <laughs> um, okay great so and a couple of marquee projects that just having just done a le- little research and just speaking to you but faena down in miami and public in new york yep so as far as completing those. And I know like Faena in particular had some crazy artwork and just so many other things going on down there. Fabulous stuff. I mean, just I, I can't even imagine how you move it from one place to the other and get it all installed. But what are some lessons that you learned on those more recent projects, opening those from... And did it change your approach at all? Or did were your processes already... Instilled and unchanging from a, from a perspective of project management?
1: Yeah, again, the process is the process. You, you've, you've, you've got to have a, a strong playbook that you default to. Um, both Fina and um, Public New York are very close to my heart. Fina was the first project I delivered in Miami, and Public was the first project I delivered in New York. Um, I work with both brands to this day. And uh, we're still at, um, at Public in uh, New York, continually evolving and developing their program. Mm. And um, I'm fortunate enough to be uh, helping Faena uh, deliver uh, their New York property.
0: Mm.
1: And then, oh, when is that opening? Um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to share that, but the, the, the target was towards the end of 24, but I think it's probably going to push into Q125.
0: Okay. You can tell me and then kill me. Yeah. Okay. If you were to compare or contrast yourself to non-luxury or ultra-luxury, how how does that white glove project management and process is is it different from just a regular project to a luxury or ultra-luxury project? Yes, it's it's
1: it's dramatically different. And um, how? So um, people probably owners probably wouldn't necessarily stomach or have the appetite to pay the fee associated with having us deliver uh days in at exit five and ninety-five. Um, you know, ultimately that's a very generic um rollout and it differs it's a it's a it's a completely different universe to a, a luxury or an ultra luxury for that matter product which is Completely unique and every program element of that property is completely unique, whether it's the, the theater and the stage or if it's the, the bars, and the restaurants, the F&B, the uh, the back of house, the guest rooms, the presidential suite, the roof terrace, it's the spa, the pools. These program elements, and and no one hotel is is similar to another. Is you mean you're starting
0: ground zero every single time, mm. and then is there anything? Okay, so another unique thing that I see when I look at when I look at you guys and see, there's you, Derek, and Gavin who are like all Scottish. How did you guys meet, and then how? What is that? A, a, Scottish thing going on this the Scottish Mafia the (laughs) Scottish Mafia what is that Uh, well I mean ultimately uh,
1: Finlay Cumming is the genesis of the entire Scottish Mafia right so it you know Finlay founded Cumming in in 96 out of Irving California Um, Derek and I were both at Glasgow Caledonian University he had a a, a very clear roadmap into what he was doing and, and he graduated and moved straight out to California and was probably Finley's fourth employee. Um, I was a, a little bit behind um, in that um, Derek saw what I had done in Miami with uh, Fina and um, he'd taken a, a leave of absence to go and work with Starwood Capital uh, on the uh, acquisition side of things, where he obviously grew a deep relationship with Gavin, who was heading up development for Barry. Um so um, I think Finlay had suggested to Derek that he'd completed his master's in, in mergers or acquisitions and come back to coming, and he did. And uh, thankfully, he called me after completing Faina and, and suggested I come and help spearhead and grow New York. Um, I don't think he was as convincing to uh, Gavin, who went off with um, Peter to form uh, Layer, But thankfully... Um, Couple of years later, um, Lair was a very natural uh, acquisition for coming in that uh, we were the very much the scrappy dogs in New York, um, whereby Peter was very well established, you know, pedigree pedigree um, project managers. So for us to truly be recognised as you know true heavyweight project managers. Um, layer was a was an easy target and thankfully uh, peter uh, came into the family and um, i thoroughly
0: enjoyed the years i I worked with peter and and learned a tremendous amount Mm. awesome and then so i didn't realize that it goes that far back okay so when you think about actually earlier you said that you prefer to come into a luxury or ultra-luxury project at a very early stage, because then you can add the most value. And then how are you, on those projects where you come in at a very early stage, if you could share an example, um, what kind of value do you guys add? Is it is it as far as assembling the whole team? Um, because setting it's up
1: before that.
0: Even yeah. before, okay. So like walk us through like what an early stage, um, relationship looks like and what the value drive from that is
1: so when we're fortunate enough to be asked to the table in that instance typically the client has a vision in mind and we're ultimately trying to help them land that vision on paper and um, that would start with uh, a super high level charette where we would identify what the outline program's going to be and to do that we would Typically have a go-to of who we think would be a, a very strong master planner because um, a lot of these sites can be you know s- spread over you know hundreds of acres. Um, so we need a, a a master planner, whether that's an architectural master planner or a landscape master planner, and we work with both and um, we have our preferred teams that we like to work with, and we would sit down um, over a two-day event better fuller understand the vision of the client and literally start mapping it out on you know paper a0 paper with color pens what the hotel program is going to be the size the volume the the program elements the landscape the roads the infrastructure um, and you know when we kind of spit that out what we think the program is going to be we can start pulling together some super high level wrong budgets and you know more often than not that wrong budget is is not received very well and we go back and start pulling back in the program and but you know that's where ultimately a project lives or dies is that first couple of days sitting down with a master planner and trying to land what's the baseline program what's the baseline budget and then does it even pencil
0: yeah and then From the times that you're brought on in that early stage, I mean, you must do look backs to say, okay, this was like the pie in the sky. We came up with these numbers. Now we showed it. I think they weren't too happy with what the numbers look like. Like you shoot for the stars. Then it's like, okay, well, let's. this is what you guys want. Now let's see how we can come up with something that's more reasonable. When you're done with the project, how often do you look back and like, I mean, you must do it on every one. Just compare. And how do you rate yourselves?
1: More than once. um, We've sat down and we've been through the, trying to land the baseline program and that baseline uh, budget. And the clients had massive sticker shock and said, we need to pull back the program. Or sometimes they've said, you're completely off target. And we decided to part ways and go in our own direction and later find out that their, you know, seventy hundred million dollar budget, whatever it is, is is actually the two hundred million dollars we told them it was going to be three years later. Um and, you know, there's not much we can do at that point but say, you know, we told you so. Um but you know, more often than not, the number we give is the right number and um program needs to be pulled back.
0: Mm. Okay.
1: Because it's not going to be that luxury, ultra luxury property by value engineering it, right? Right. This just value engineering uh, and a man resort. It happens, but you know you cannot, you cannot do
0: anything that would have any ability to impact the overall guest experience whatsoever. Totally. So that and that's that's really what's driving is that guest experience.
1: hundred percent. Listen, a, a guest arrives and they, they, they see the pretty things, the exterior finishes, and they've really got no idea what's going on behind the walls. So, you know, value engineering, if it comes to that, has to be carefully thought through in that those guest experiences are not impact you impacted. You do not wanna be changing out Violeta, beautiful marble finishes in the spa for a porcelain tile mm. because it's no longer a five-star or an ultra luxury product it's just every other generic hotel at that point
0: mm. and then again going back to that one trick pony metaphor you've been doing this for over 20 years yeah correct in the in the hospitality space how have you nikki Evolved over that twenty-five years, and I'm asking from a way like we get a lot of younger people looking or listening or watching um, these podcasts and thinking about all these great careers into hospitality, design, development. Like, how has how has your career evolved? Like, could you see yourself here right now from when you were first starting? And any words of advice for other people who who may want to get into project management or? As a, a representative of ownership groups, um, I'm I'm pretty
1: tenacious. I'm pretty stubborn, um, and you know my wife regularly tells me I'm tenacious, um, and she tells she says I'm stubborn too. Uh, <laughs> but my my advice would be, you know, people give up too easy. People just don't have the stomach for it, and it's like if you're gonna start something see it through and finish it, right? Because it's all an experience and an experience is only good, right? It can be a bad experience, but it's still experience. An experience is good. So my my advice and recommendation to my interns and we have a, a small army of interns is look, you might not enjoy this moment in time in the project, but stick it through because giving up, and moving from one job to another, it really doesn't look good in a resume. I mean, I, I go through resumes daily. And a resume to me is very quick to read because I've flicked through it and it's 18 months, 12 months, seven months. I, I've, I've no interest in it whatsoever because clearly they've never started a project and seen it all the way through fruition to handing it over. And someone that has had the benefit of living and breathing from the initial visionary programming budgeting through the design phase through the procurement through the awards through construction and more importantly through that turnover and closeout of a project that's invaluable absolutely invaluable so if someone has that
0: they you know the the stars is a limit for them so you're looking for gluttons for punishment
1: yep Yep, tenacious absolutely. gluttons yeah. for punishment I like I like tenacious
0: people okay let's say you find them, but how do you teach them to be even more? having the ability to genuinely care and and take ownership
1: uh, is where you know many people struggle and and that struggle can come with training or sometimes it's just natural to people um you know when it comes to operations. Uh, an operational training, Training's more than just turning down a bed, setting a table uh, or checking someone in. You know, true hospitality training is all encompassing, uh, whereby, you know, you take ownership of what's not my job. You know, the, the little piece of litter in the hotel lobby, the empty coffee cup and a, a table, uh, a helping hand to an elderly guest, an ear to listen, uh, a careful eye, a, a gentle hand. You know that's hospitality, and
0: that's what really makes the difference. I love that. It's go- It's 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 really and and if you think about why you're doing all those extra things, even though they're not called, they're not. It's not like part of your job description. It's because you have the empathy. For that other person that that guest that's walking through to experience it right
1: you put so much into these projects you want them to be nothing short of an acclaimed success mm. and if you see something that's out of place you can't not help yourself but to step in and name you know that's a problem i mean i regularly go to properties and my wife selena will will get Frustrated because I'm picking out the flaws, and and, and she's like, "Why don't you switch off and enjoy where you are?" Um, but yeah, you know, unfortunately, I, it's it's a, a trait that will follow me for the rest of my days.
0: Yeah, um, I guess earlier earlier in my career in the early two thousands. There was a gentleman named Stan Bromley who was – did you ever know him? I did not. Oh, He was like a, a GM but also like in the higher management structure of Four Seasons. He was in San Francisco. He was in D.C. then moved to San Francisco. And I would have coffee with him sometimes. My, my mother-in-law was actually friends with him or still is friends with him. But he would always walk around with like a little – like an index card and notice all these things. He would – and walking through the hotel with him, he'd pick stuff up. But he, the stuff that he couldn't do right then and there, he'd make a note and let's say there were fingerprints on a door or just other things that were out of place, he wouldn't go to the person that was responsible for that because that would have been a missed opportunity for training and growth for the manager. Yeah. He would collect all these things and then sit down and be like, okay, I noticed this, 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 like, what can you do about it? So in a way he's, if he went directly to that person, He's taking an opportunity for learning and growth for that manager, and then that manager it's all it's an opportunity for him or her to have the person that was responsible for it to learn and grow from that as well and again that's that's training that's culture that's just it's uh it it, it has so much to do with what hospitality is oh actually going back to you and that tenacity, how is that? How's that serve you over your 25 years?
1: It's not dissimilar to the advice I give. I, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have worked on some wonderful projects. Um, I've also worked on some not so wonderful projects. And, you know, some of those are going on to this day. Um, but um, I think it served me well. Um, it's, it's important to be able to emphasize and share with fellow younger team members and new clients and owners that you have the stomach for it Mm. and you're not going to give up at the first hurdle or you're not going to give up at the 29th hurdle you're going to see it through you're going to be there with them by their side and you will have will have fallouts along the way but you know dust yourself off pick yourself up and and carry on you know it's there's no one person is more important than the project
0: Mm. okay so you've been here for you've been doing this for 25 years um, as you look at all the evolution of coming and where you are now, and where you, Nikki, are right now, and what's exciting you most as you look ahead over the next handful of years,
1: I COVID changed everything. It really did. Um, people, people, people want more, and and they're going to continue to push the boundaries of what that more is um there there's talk and there's I'm witnessing all inclusive making a a a strong comeback but you know people want more they want better experiences and those experiences can be on property they can be off property but it's it's the the world of hospitality's forever changed people aren't going to accept substandard anymore mm. they want good finish they want good service and it's got to be consistent it can't be you know show up on a sunday morning and it's different to what you experienced the day before it's got to be consistent and it's got to
0: be good so on the consist i love the word consistency because to me i always hear this word authentic Oh, be authentic more authentic but to me what authenticity is is just really being consistent on what you're delivering right so Nikki, as you look to the future of the projects that you have that, of, with clients that you're working with, or even ones that you're not working with, and more, more aspirational clients that are out there, what is exciting you about what you're seeing in the future as it pertains to luxury and ultra-luxury hospitality?
1: What excites me and what excites a lot of people is is the unknown, right? People are going to continue to push the boundaries and challenge themselves and others and you know ultra luxury is a very unique uh, experience and you know luxury is a massively over utilized word which is why we've had to come up with you know ultra luxury and you know in years from now it's going to be ultra ultra luxury but um ultra luxury is really being able to anticipate truly anticipate an emotional connection with the guest and second guessing what's going to excite them and and that experience as I said earlier could be on the property and it could be off the property right and um, there's one particular flag that I'm aware of that because of who they are, they have an ability to give guests an off-market experience in that if they were in Zion National Park, for example, they could literally drive in the back door, not see another tourist, and have a literally VIP gateway entrance to Zion National Park. Mm. And the problem with Zion isn't Zion, the problem with Zion is Through COVID, it just became so popular that it's it's been detrimental to the experience of Zion now. There's just so many people. So for a particular flag to have the ability to provide that true VIP experience of property really does separate them from anybody else.
0: And that would be Amangiri. 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 I've never been there. I've always wanted to go. Have you stayed there? I've
1: been on property a number of times, but I've never stayed there. Um, um, Canyon owned the the, the local Hyatt in Page, where which is where I reside when I'm in property.
0: And how how far is that drive from Page to? It's twenty minutes. Oh, because whenever I see those photos of Amangiri, it looks like it's on Mars. It it's the most unique and
1: surreal landscape you'll ever experience. And were you involved in that from the very beginning? I was not, Oh, you were not involved in that? I was not, no. I I have a a good working relationship with Canyon, and we're now uh,
0: working with them on the Amangiri private residences. There? There at Amangiri. Oh, and is it the same type of, is it the same architect? Yeah, Massa. Oh, wow. And all that concrete forming. All
1: exposed concrete. And, you know, it looks like it's very simple, but usually it's the most simple things are the most challenging. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, massively challenging. Mm. Um, because of its location, because of its design, because of a hundred different things.
0: Yeah, just getting everything there, I can't even imagine. And and then the execution, and it's so hard to find good people that can execute on the on that vision as well consistently. Right. So getting... especially there, where you know, it, I don't know, do you, have, do you have to put up housing for people? So, uh, yep. And um, I mean, ultimately, that's why um, Canyon
1: have the. the the, the the hotel in Page because it was ultimately used for labour housing mm. um, uh, from the outset and now you know Page is grown as a town you know tenfold it's quite something how how how, how well recognised Page is but yeah it's it's all of the above there's there's uh, accommodations to be provided people aren't expected to come and go it's uh, it's it's very challenging and it's very cost prohibitive too
0: so. I want to go back to something you said about lead. Like, I'm I'm a lead accredited professional. I was like very hook, line, and sinker bought into it back in 2008 or nine. Yep. Plus, it was something to do after the financial crisis when there was not a lot of work going on. But it, I had time to like do a real deep dive into it, and I I really appreciate everything that lead brought to the vernacular of what we what we're all doing, and it kind of helped push sustainability and like an action plan for what we can do in the built environment. However, I come from like the FF&E world, right? So oftentimes lead does not apply to that. And as much as I appreciate how lead moved the needle, um, if you look at a building, let's say it lasts 100 years. If it goes That's under 10, building. right, well, let's just say like you're building a, a new building, it's 100 years. I just like 100 because it's easy math. You might, if if you're doing a renovation every 10 years, that's 10 renovations of FF&E that goes in and out, the supply chain, the materials, the impact. And I think that while LEED is a great start, it doesn't address all the things that go into it from a furniture, fixture, and equipment perspective. Um, As you're dealing with companies like Six Senses or star uh starwood or one hotels because like, you've worked on all those right yeah. yeah okay so and sustainability seems to be on the forefront with all of them how do you kind of reconcile or select vendors or select materials that can last a but also think about what the renovation cycle would be like in the future and you might not even be on the project
1: so the ff and e design ultimately comes from the ID team. And um, sometimes the ID team are suggesting or tabling materials that we know from past experience are not fit for purpose. Like a Laurent stone, for example, does not belong on a bar counter because it's gonna get very quickly decimated with citrus, your, your limes and your lemons, and you'll end up with a tough guard over the top of it, which, you know, doesn't look good. Um, but we we ultimately try and best opine where we can from from past experience which materials are good bad and different. Um, but you know the the reality is when you're working with luxury and ultra luxury properties, you know you get what you pay for. And um, if you if you buy if you value engineer your ff and e, you know you get what you pay for. And you know you're going to be replacing case goods, you know every ten years, whereby. If you buy the right case goods, you know, there's no reason why they can't last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, the, the soft goods, the soft furnishings, 100%, they need to be replaced as and when. But it, it's being able to table past experience and what's worked and, and what's not worked. And we have, unfortunately, experience of what's not worked. Mm.
0: I found on case goods, like, that's kind of my bread and butter, but I found that. The the ownership groups that are willing to invest in not only good case goods but also like solid surface tops, for instance, horizontal on horizontal surfaces, it makes things last. They can last twenty years. Yep. And so when you're when you're looking at like a let's say you're on the edge of a of a budget plan, and then but the owners it's a trophy property. They want this thing to last, and you're like, look, you if you really want this to last, I think that's a really wise spend to do this. How do you navigate those conversations when it might put them over? Are you looking to take from somewhere else? So unfortunately, um, <clears throat> it all comes down to you know capital
1: expenditure. Mm. And um, the, the construction budget and the soft costs is one thing. And the, the future maintenance of the property is another. Budget that's passed on to operations. Mm-hmm. So that's not something that um, we regularly opine on.
0: Mm. Okay. You're just there conducting and making it all get done.
1: That can kick down the road for someone else.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you think about the planning and execution of a hotel development, let's say from that early stage where you're doing the master plan, you know, you shoot for the stars, you, you tone it back, you keep progressing and you execute on that vision. Your tenacity has kept you there for the whole time. Um, You deliver this finished project. How do you think that that finished project where you go from beginning to end, all the things are going right, how do you think that that helps define the hospitality experience that a guest may experience? Or do they not experience it?
1: They they have no
0: little to no idea
1: what's happened to
0: make that experience possible so they're just seeing the end result that's like it's kind of funny it's like it's almost as I if why
1: should they right they're paying top dollar to be there
0: yeah you know they
1: don't why should they care right they want to walk in and just be they don't they don't necessarily want to be wowed it's you know if you're paying that money it's an expectation
0: yeah and I, I on one hand I also think it's similar to if signage or way wayfinding is done really really well You don't notice it. You just wind up getting to where you're supposed to be.
1: So on that, like um, and I keep defaulting back to Aman and
0: uh, Amanhuri in
1: Utah, but you know, the when people when people talk about signage and more importantly, um, identity at the the at the the gateway to some of these sites, they, they have these grand ideas about Monolith signs and hundreds of thousands of dollars more. Um, when you look at a man, it's um, it's literally a, a a farm gate, an electrified farm gate, on a four by four uh, post with a small twelve inch sign that says "A man," and that's it. I mean, they're not expecting people to drive past and say, "Oh, there's a man. Let's go in." You know, you're going there because you're going there, mm-hmm. and sometimes less is more and I'm a big fan of less is more
0: hmm. how did you wind up getting into all of this from uh, Glasgow Caledonia into project <laughs> management is that something you've, st- you want, you've studied from the beginning yeah, I, yeah, I've, I've, always, I, I've, I've always been in hospitality so I,
1: I did quantity surveying at Glasgow Caledonia and then I did my placement year with a, a, a small um, private practice in Glasgow Fitzsimons Um and um there you know they i was thrown into the deep end and i and i really really enjoyed the experience and one of their clients at the time was um, ihg mm. um and uh, you know after i graduated i went back and i worked closely with um and ihg and we ended up touching you know 98 properties and in three years um you know Soft renovations, hardware extensions, just in the UK. Oh, just in the UK. Um, and then I moved on and went to another firm and ended up um, packing my bags to go to the Caribbean in 07 and kind of haven't, haven't looked back and migrated north to Miami in 16 and con- uh, sorry, migrated north to Miami in 12 and continued the migration north to New York in 16.
0: Mm. I'm here now. And then if you think back to growing up in Scotland, when you're when you're homesick or you want a little touch of Scotland, what, what what's your go-to food that you you really miss?
1: Unfortunately, um, most of the food choices in Scotland probably aren't the healthiest. <laughs>
0: well, that's okay. What's your favorite? <laughs>
1: uh, I love all food. There's not food, not much food I don't like. Um, but um, you know, Glasgow is well known for its curries. Uh, tremendous. Um, some of the best curries in the world are from Glasgow. Chicken Tikka Masala was founded in Glasgow. No way. Yes. Really? Yes. Mother India. Um, so I, I'm a big fan of Scottish cuisine, yeah. Chinese and Indian food, fish and chips, well, I'll have
0: it all. Scottish is everything. Yeah. Um, okay, so back to Glasgow Caledonia University. How old were you when you finished? Uh, early 20s. Early 20s, Okay. So, the forty-eight-year-old Nikki that I'm talking to, sitting across from right now, if you were to magically appear in front of your early twenties self, what advice do you have for yourself? Um, <clears throat> I probably would have got out to
1: the. I probably would have got out to the states sooner. Really? Yes. There's just so much opportunity here.
0: Mm. So just pack up your bags and go. To my younger Nikki, yes. Mm. And where would you have
1: gone to? Oh, probably New York. Mm-hmm. There's just, I mean, it's not called the land of opportunity for nothing. There really is so much opportunity. And if you want something, just go and get it.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. That's, been, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like we don't hear that enough anymore. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> I wish you came here earlier, too. Oh, yeah. Um if people want to learn more about you or coming, how can they get in touch or learn more?
1: Yeah, reach out to me on LinkedIn. If I, if, I, if, I, if I think you're not an axe murderer, I'll, I'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, LinkedIn gives me some, some sense of privacy. So uh, yeah, please, anyone that's looking for work or advice, reach out, say hello. Anyone that's looking for a good project manager, I'll, uh, I'll give Dan my cell number, and you can pick up with him directly.
0: Yeah. Well, and then actually that reminds me, if there are other companies, because you're still on the acquisition path, correct? I, I, I believe it. Derek and John are, yeah. Okay. So if there, are there if there's any companies that are looking to be acquired or grow through acquisition, you're welcoming those calls too? I would have to de- direct that back to uh, Derek and, and John okay we'll, we'll direct it back to them <laughs> maybe i'll get them on one day and they can they can discuss it um well thank you for bringing me to your office it's been so fantastic i really appreciate your time i know how busy you are opening up all these properties so thank you nikki
1: thank you dan thank you for having me
0: yeah and then i also just want to thank all of our listeners um without you and our growth every single week we wouldn't be sitting here right now so Thank you. And if this has changed your idea of hospitality or how to deliver hospitality or luxury or ultra luxury hospitality, please pass it along. And thank you.